fill out the survey? Oh, of course. Okay, of course. Like. <laughs> Health promotion, right. So if you're going to build a house and you uh, hear a bunch of screaming uh, naked kids outside, what do you do? I, I guess if you're this Rosita girl, you decide to feed the kids and clothe the kids. That's a Christian response, isn't it? That's a good response to, does the law say we have to feed them or clothe them? No, in fact, most of the people in the area weren't doing that. But this sister is doing that. That's, a, that's an obedience from the heart to what God's called us to. Today I want to talk a little bit about Christmas and obedience and, uh, and holiness and faith. That's a lot of stuff to cover. But they're all kind of interwoven, and we're going to cover them in a, in a nice interwoven way. What are you going to give God for Christmas? I know you're thinking about all kinds of gifts for your kids, for your wife, for your husband. What are you going to give to God? What do you give to the Lord? This is a verse I saw long ago. The next slide. Uh, he says, give me your heart. Give me your, we've just been singing about that. Lay down your burdens. Lay down your heart. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Isn't that an interesting verse? That's what God wants from you. Sometimes we come together, always, we come together and we sing, we praise God, we celebrate, we feel closer to God, we deal with sin, we draw near to Him, and we feel better about it. But too quickly we go out, we pick up our heart again, and we pick up our burdens again, and our eyes don't observe His ways. We have all kinds of struggles. It's interesting, I was driving the other day, I was just taking a car back to the airport, it was a Toyota I hadn't driven, and I was supposed to get gas, you know, before I got back to the airport, I popped buttons and pulled this, I'd stopped to get gas, and I, there was a trunk button, there was a hood button, there, there was no gas opener button, and I'm thinking, ah, and I'm late, I'm looking at it, I'm putzing around, I had a good devotional time that morning, I was walking in the spirit, I thought, <laughs> until Toyota confronted me with no, <laughs> no gas opening button, so I went out, I banged on the door, I thought, maybe just push on it, it'll open, nope, that didn't work, maybe I can't push another, lifted that one, lift that one, finally I noticed there's another, there's no label on this, but there is another little pulley job in between. There's a handle out here to open the trunk, and then there's another one in the middle that doesn't say anything, and you can stick your finger in and get that. So I was pulling buttons and poking and finally got it, but after I thought, you know, five minutes, I'm thinking, I'm going to be late, I'm going to miss the plane, whatever. <laughs> you know, I think, how easy, a little thing like that to kind of get you out of the spirit. We're supposed to be able to suffer and be tough, and be in the Spirit all the time. But little things get us out of the Spirit, don't they? We're supposed to be holy men of God. And yet, it's such a little thing that can move us out of the Spirit. We're supposed to be obedient. And yet, we can, you know, we come together like this. We sing and we praise God. And Bonhoeffer said, I think, I think it was Bonhoeffer. He said, never judge your, your spiritual maturity based on your experience of God in a group. Because he said the group brings you all kinds of stuff. Judge it when you're alone. Judge it when you're in the fire. It's not when you're, how, how wonderful a time you can have in comfortable pews in an air-conditioned building singing praises to God. It's out in the forest. It's out in the tough world. That's where you judge where you are spiritually. God calls us to give us, to give us obedience. He says, when you give your heart observe my ways. That's what's going to happen. So when we give our heart, we give obedience to God. And, and, you know, that's pretty obvious. Jesus said, if he has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one that loves me. And when we worship the Lord, we worship him in the beauty of holiness, which is an 
obedience. And so throughout the scripture, you see in Peter, uh, gird up the loins of your mind, think about the grace that's going to come to you. As obedient children, don't conform yourselves to former lusts, but as he who called you is holy, you be holy in everything because it's written, be holy for I am holy. You know where that verse comes from? It's over and over and over in Leviticus. Every time God gives a command, be holy, do this, be holy, do that, be holy, do this, be holy, be holy, be holy, do this, do this, do this, be holy. It's like all the commands of God amount to being holy. In fact, if you think about it, what does God tell you to do? Sin? No, don't sin. Everything he tells you, don't do that, don't do this, don't do this, do this. Do the good thing, be holy, don't sin. All the law basically tells you, don't sin. So God sanctifies us or makes us holy on one level by giving us his law, by giving us his rules. He says, here's what sin is, here's what sin's not. You do this, you're going to be holy. You do this, you're not going to be so holy. You should be holy men. And if you look at some of the lists in Leviticus, some of them come out kind of funny. He has ceremonial holiness and, and things like not eating certain meats or your utensils have to be a certain level of holiness or your clothes have to be holy or the oil in the tabernacle has to be holy. The tabernacle, But people... People have to be holy. And holy basically means to be set apart. So we set ourselves apart from sin, okay? How do we do that? How do we set ourselves apart from a sin? Well, first we do it through the commandments of God. And one of the ways we do it is remembering them. The second way God does it is by giving us his Holy Spirit to empower us to do what's right. And to resist what's wrong. In Numbers, this is a good example. Speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels. Make them a, you know, Jesus had fringed garments. And the woman, you know, that was healed touched the fringe of his garment. Well, this is the tassel or the fringe. One of the brothers today was a Messianic guy, had one of the tassels. Show me your tassel there. He had a tassel. His little tassels. You'll see some of the Jewish guys with things like that on. And they'll have a little blue uh, cord in it. That's a fulfillment of this text that is a... They make tassels to remind them of the law, the Torah, and the blue to remind them of holiness, the holiness of God and that they are a holy people, that we are a holy people. Well, you don't have tassels, do you, or fringes, but you have the Holy Spirit within you to remind you, and you have the Word of God in great measure. I mean, you guys have the Scriptures. Uh, it, you know, the Jewish people couldn't carry the Scripture around. They could memorize it maybe, but they had all kinds of ways to remind them of the law of God, the Torah, the rules of God. But when God's Spirit came in the New Covenant, what happens to the Torah? It gets written on our hearts. Does that mean that you can quote the book of Leviticus? How many can quote the book of Leviticus? Because the law of God under the New Covenant is written on your heart. Must not be under the New Covenant, I guess. Okay, well. For those of you that are Christians and can quote the book of Leviticus, uh, under the... <laughs> no, <laughs> we're not... A, we're Christians, we're under the New Covenant. And he says that under the New Covenant, he'll write the Torah on our hearts. But it's, it's all the law of God. It's... it's not just obedience from the letter of the law, Paul says, but the spirit of the law. So, of him are you in Christ. Let's see, this is the one that talks about, uh, of him are you in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, Christ becomes sanctification for us. And the spirit sanctifies us. The next slide talks about being made holy and uh, being made holy. In, in Hebrews 10.10, it says, by this will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. So you have been made holy, 
And then in the next verse, or the next couple of verses, he says, by one offering he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Isn't that interesting? Do you ever grapple with that? There's a sense in that you have been made holy by the blood of Christ, by the sacrifice of Christ. There's another sense in that you're being made holy. You're being sanctified as you walk in the Spirit, as the Spirit guides you, as you perfect holiness. In fact, in Hebrews it says, uh, pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The command is to pursue holiness. So though you have it in one sense, you're still pursuing it in another. This one, this text in Psalm 40 I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my, your heart, my heart. This is quoted from Psalm um, 40 when Je- Jesus, it's quoted of Jesus. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. And that's what happens to us too. As God's law is in our heart, it's written in our hearts, there's a desire, there's a delight in doing God's will. So why is it that we don't always do that? I mean, if the law of God is written on our hearts, we delight to do his will. Holiness isn't just external. It's, conform- it's not conformity to the letter, but it's conformity to the will of God. Boltman, great theologian, wrote, radical obedience exists only when a man inwardly assents to what is required of him. When the whole man stands behind what he does, when the whole man is in what he does, when he's not doing something obediently, but is essentially obedient. What a good What a good statement, huh? Obedience is not just you doing a few things. It's you doing what God calls you to do. It's you hearing naked kids screaming and hollering outside and saying, huh, guess we better feed those kids. Is that written in the Torah somewhere? No. But it's something that God speaks to her heart. And so she begins doing that. Well, in Romans 6, is that where we are, Romans 6? No. No. We're in the journey. Let's go back to the journey. I got these things out of order. What's the next one? Yeah. I want to spend a little bit of time today uh, just talking about the journey of holiness. Because over the last 2,000 years of the church, all Christians have struggled with just what you struggle with. They wanted to be holy. They knew, you know, God has done something in my life. And I want to do what's right. And I want to be holy. But at the same time, I don't feel very holy all the time. Why is there this disconnect? Why is it that I know what's right and I have a heart for God and I know his law is in my heart, but, but I'm not as holy as I want to be. I'm not as holy as I could be. I'm not as holy as I should be. Why is there that, that disconnect in our lives or that struggle? Well, always in the church, there are some that seem more holy than others. They are really working at being holy. They pursue holiness like they ought to. In the first centuries, there were the martyrs. And these were people that stood for Christ even when it meant death. And they set the standard. Peter and Paul and James and John, you know, these guys that were apostles and those that followed after them in the next 100, 200 years stood for Christ. And what did it result in? Many of them were slaughtered. Many of them were killed. And so the church in general looked to those that were killed and said, wow, this is the standard. How do you know that you're really holy? You're willing to shed your blood. You're willing to die, not kill others. Some of the Muslim population would say, well, here's how we know we're holy. We kill, kill the infidel. No. In fact, that kind of theory happened in the Middle Ages at one point that Christians would go on crusade. Here's how we know we're holy. We're going to go and kill Muslims. 
Not a good plan. <laughs> but here's how they knew they were holy. They were willing to die. What do you do, though? Only so many of them were killed. And what if God doesn't call you to die? And what happens when the bulk of the culture becomes Christian? So they're not killing Christians anymore. Then what do you do? Nobody wants to kill you because you're a Christian. In fact, the bulk of the population, the emperor becomes a Christian. Constantine becomes a Christian. What do they do then? Well, you move to the age of the monastics. The very holy people took off into the desert. They went into the desert. They'd live in caves. They'd pray. They'd sing. They'd fast. They'd be apart from the world. They'd say, we're willing to lay down our lives seeking God and seeking holiness. And they became kind of the model. And after a while, you got whole monastic communities where they'd go apart, they'd come apart with a team, and they'd live in monasteries. St. Francis and uh, uh, many of the mendicant orders and many of the early monastic orders would just set up a colony of people that would live together and pour out their lives for one another. Sometimes they'd leave and go and preach to the people, but mostly they just came apart to come apart. To, to be sanctified, to come apart from the world, to come apart from sin. And they'd seek to throw aside uh, sin, to fast, to eat less meat, to wear rough clothing, to do all kinds of things. In fact, they called these orders rules. So you can read like the rule of St. Francis, or you can read the rule of, uh, of Benedict. This is a very popular, this is the rule of St. Benedict in English. This became a very popular thing, and it, it's a longer rule, and it tells you about how to get into the order, uh, steps of humility, and how you can, you can grow in your, in your walk. Uh, it, even, it gets into how much you can eat, what kind of clothing you can have. It gets into the fact that you have to have the old guys have to sleep between the young guys so they're not talking and goofing off. You have to, you have to order the whole life. The rule is a rule for pursuing holiness. And, uh, you know, to get into the thing, I mean, it talks, the guy can only come after you've knocked on the door for two or three days. Don't even let anybody in if they haven't stood outside banging on the door for two or three days to want to get in. That's to show you really want to be a part of the, this uh, Benedictine order. St. Francis was another one early on, and, you know, he gave them rules about what they could wear and what they could eat and how they were supposed to live their lives. So the, the monastics kind of moved all through the Middle Ages. And in the Middle Ages... Because people didn't know the language very well or read the Greek and the Hebrew, and many people couldn't even read the scriptures. The scriptures weren't even in their languages. So they listened to the church, and much of spirituality became, you know, taking communion, going through rituals, pictures. And there was a big focus on dying and suffering and seeking after God, daily dying, daily suffering. They believed that they were saved because of their baptism early in life they were baptized as babies but they still had to pursue holiness they had to work their way out of purgatory they did do all kinds of things they'd do journeys eventually they did uh, journeys to the holy lands and they'd do all kinds of things give money have prayer do whatever kind of thing and pretty soon they had all kinds of rules throughout the middle ages well what happened to the reformation some of these leading monks said wait a minute, this is not what the scripture really says. We're not supposed to do all this stuff. It's by faith that we become holy. It's by faith that we're saved. By faith we're justified. And by faith we live lives of holiness. So Luther and Calvin and some of these leaders in the, in the Reformation 
pulled away. And they, you know, when, when the Reformation took hold, many of the monasteries were broken down. There's none of this going away and being in a monastery. Live your life. Do it right. You know, get out there. Be holy people. But believe and you'll be holy. And there was a lot of debate about who believed what. So you could be Calvinist or you could be Lutheran or you could be Catholic or whatever. And it was what you believed that made you holy and made you right. But within just 100 years after the Reformation, you know what was happening? They were arguing so much about how they believed and what they believed that there was not a whole lot of holiness going on. They were fighting each other. They were killing each other. They were letting the world go to pot. And they were not living holy lives. So you had movements of reform like the Pietist movement, like the Anabaptist movement. Uh, I was going to read some. I didn't have much time to read in the first uh, section about some of, these, some of these neat movements. It's always nice to see um, what it was like for some of these people at the time that, that it happened. Let me just read you about the monks, uh, and I'll give you a couple of these quotes. Um, this is a contented monk. So this is in the Middle Ages, the monks. Our food is scanty, our garments are rough, our drink is from the stream, and our sleep often under the brook. Under our tired limbs, there is but a hard mat. When sleep is sweetest, we must rise at a bell's bidding. Self-will is no, has no scope. There's no moment for idleness or dissipation. Everywhere peace, everywhere a serenity, and a marvelous freedom from the tumult of the world. Such unity and concord is there among the brethren that each thing seems to belong to all and all to each. To put all in brief, no perfection expressed in the words of the gospel or of the apostles, or in the writings of the fathers, or in the sayings of the monks of old, is lacking to our order and our way of life. And this is a contented monk, okay? He really is having a good time there. This is from the same age, a discontented monk. Everything here and in my nature are opposed to each other. I cannot endure the daily tasks. The sight of it all revolts me. I'm tormented and crushed down by the length of the vigils. I often succumb to the manual labor. The food cleaves to my mouth more, than, more bitter than wormwood. The rough clothing cuts through my skin and flesh down to my very bones. More than this, my will is always hankering after other things. It longs for the delights of the world and sighs unceasingly for its loves and affections and pleasures. So even in the monastery, you couldn't be totally holy. They were grappling and, you know, there were tough times there. But with the Anabaptists in the, in the Reformation and the, the challenge to live holy lives, some of the Anabaptists, this would be in the Reformation time along with Luther and Calvin, uh, Menno Simons, the Mennonites, came out of this age. The Anabaptist vision, this is one of the leaders of today, a church historian wrote, the Anabaptist vision included three major points of emphasis. First, a new conception of the essence of Christianity as discipleship. Second, a new conception of the church as a brotherhood. And third, a new ethic of love and non-resistance. Menno Simons, one of their great leaders, wrote when he was talking about people that could just say that they believed that they were Lutherans, they were Calvinists, or they were Catholics, and that was okay. And they could just live like they wanted to live. He said, tell me, dear beloved, where and when did you read in the scriptures that the true witness of the Holy Ghost and the criterion of our conscience, that the unbelieving, disobedient, carnal man the adulterous, immoral, drunken, avaricious, idolatrous, and pompous man has one single promise of the kingdom of Christ or his church. Yes, part or communion in his merits, death or blood. I tell you the truth, nowhere and never do we read in the scriptures 
this kind of thing that they have that. Yet the poor, the ignorant people are, confront, are comforted in vain with masses, martins, vespers, confessionages, confessionals, pilgrimages, holy water, and what's more with Christ's grace and death and blood, the word stands unshaken. For if you live after the flesh, you will surely die. Truly, I say to you, except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. So in, in part, in this post-Reformation or late Reformation, they're saying there needs to be more than just doctrine. There needs to be more than just a faith that says I'm right. There needs to be a holiness about life. The pietist Philip Jacob Spainer was a leader in the Lutheran pietist movement. So this is just a, about 100 years after Luther. And it's fascinating how parallel this can be to evangelicalism today because the Lutheran church then was called evangelical. Our evangelical church embraces, embraces the precious and pure gospel brought clearly to light once again during the previous century through that blessed instrument of God, Dr. Martin Luther. And yet, we cannot turn our eyes upon our church without having quickly to cast them down again in shame and distress. Almost everywhere, there's something wanting in the church. We preachers in the ecclesiastical estate cannot deny that our estate is thoroughly corrupt. You know when you see a tree whose leaves are fading and withering, that there's something wrong at the roots. So when you see that the people are undisciplined, you must realize that no doubt their priests are not holy. I know that God has kept some in our ranks who take the work of the Lord seriously, and I'm not of a mind to go to extremes and throw out the child with the bathwater. Interesting phrase. However, I cannot say anything other than that we preachers in our estate need reformation as much as any estate can ever need it. Look at the pastors around our church. We're guilty of open scandal. We, really, we don't really understand and practice true Christianity. We have a worldly spirit. We are drawn to carnal pleasure, lust of the eye, and arrogant behavior. We seek promotions. We shift from parish to parish. We engage in all sorts of machinations. It's my intention to conclude that no good work has been accomplished through the clergy and their work, nor that true faith and true conversion may not have been brought about in somebody through them. For the word does not receive its divine power from the person of the one who proclaims it, but has this power itself. I have no doubt that we would soon have an altogether different church if most of us ministers were of such a sort that we could unblushingly say to our congregations with Paul, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Powerful. This is the beginning of pietism, of this holiness movement in, in Europe. And the same thing happened among the Puritans in, in England. It was this major movement of holiness and pursuing after God and, and seeking, seeking a, right, a right walk with God, a holiness, a disciplined life. So you had, um, got too many quotes here. You had pietism and, um, where was I with your notes? Um, are we on Romans 6? Nope. Let's go, well, let's go through the rest of these. Pietism, Methodism, after Puritanism. Um, the Methodist movement was a methodical movement. That's why they're called Methodists. John Wesley comes out of the Anglican church, and he has all, he's the first one to come up with house groups. Anybody in house groups? These were the first house groups, and they said, I think we could be more holy if we had house groups, and we could challenge each other, and we have real discipline in the group. In fact, in their house groups, you held each other accountable. You'd confess sin to one another, and you'd go through and say, how much time are you spending in the Word? What have you learned today? What are you doing? 
What, what about that sin I heard about last week? Are you doing that anymore? Well, you better stay, change it. We're all going to work with you on this sin. And they'd really confront each other and they'd hold themselves accountable for, for all the different, uh, the different disciplines that they had. And so they were methodical in their pursuit of holiness. Wesley eventually developed this doctrine of perfectionism. And he wrote later on that even though you have all these disciplines he concluded that you could have a second work of grace that would, that would eliminate sin from your life. That you could... Um, he says, uh, we, taught that we have taught for a long time, he wrote this book called Entire Sanctification. Is this falling off? It's not entirely sanctified. <laughs> um, he said, we learned that there was a remedy for the sickness of systemic sinfulness, a personal definitive work of God's sanctifying grace by which the war within oneself could cease and the heart be fully released from rebellion into whole love for God. This relationship of perfect love could be accomplished not by excellence of moral achievements, but by the same faith in the merits of Christ and his sacrifice for sin that had initially brought justification. The new life in Christ was a total death to sin an entire renewal in the image of God. To this day, my brother and I maintain that Christian perfection is that love of God and our neighbor which applies deliverance from all sin, that this is received merely by faith, that it's given instantaneously in one moment, and we're to expect it not at death, but every moment. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And so they came up with what they called uh, double cure theology. We still sing about double cure. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from the wounded side which flowed be of sin, the double cure. What's that double cure? Save from wrath and make me pure. So uh, John Wesley was the first to come up with this double cure theology that it has to do with the life of Christ being applied to us, not only his death being applied, but then by faith his new life is applied. And he came up with this idea that just by praying through and really seeking God, you could have this other experience of God where you didn't sin anymore, or at least you didn't sin very badly. I remember when I was a young man, I was arguing with some of the guys, some Nazarenes, and they were from a seminary, and the one, one guy said to me, oh, we have men in our church, elders, leaders in our church, they never sin. I said, really, never sin? I said, why don't you ask one of them, go up to him personally and say, do you never sin anymore? He said, well, I will, I know there are a lot of them like that. And he came back the next day and he said to me, well, Jerry, you're right. I asked him and they said, well, we don't really sin. We make a lot of, we make mistakes sometimes, but we don't. <laughs> so they redefine sin as not being real bad sin and they never sin, but, but this didn't quite work. So you have, you have the Methodist movement, then you have a Pentecostalism that, that came up and, and basically argued that you could pray and you could have this experience of Pentecost and power and tongues and again, it would sanctify you and make you holy, the whole Pentecostal holiness movement. Now you don't hear of it so much as the holiness movement, just as the Pentecostal movement. And the assemblies follow that, the assembly of God. But basically, they wouldn't argue that they never sin anymore, just that they have this endowment of power. It's so just seeking the Holy Spirit to empower them. Well, there was kind of a response to that in Keswick and the deeper life, and many of you are probably in some of these kind of movements, uh, the saving life of Christ or... What's the group that we're doing, we've done here at the church that is uh, Deeper Life Movement? What do you guys call it? Life in, what? 
Freedom in Christ, identity in Christ, or freedom in Christ. And it, it, it's rooted in the Keswick and deeper life movements. It says it's as we know Christ in fullness that we have freedom. We don't just take him as Savior, but we take him by faith. But again, it's a progressive thing. So that salvation is here instantaneous. And the life of Christ, the holiness of Christ, is a progressive, ongoing thing, not instantaneous. For the Pentecostals and Wesley, you had instantaneous salvation instantaneous sanctification. For the Reformation and the deeper life movements, you have instantaneous salvation, but a progressive holiness, a holiness that you pursue. You pursue holiness continually. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And are you holy all the time? Well, yes, you've been made holy, but you're struggling with it. and You work it out. In the Catholic perspective, you don't get salvation instantaneously. It's progressive. And sanctification is progressive and they go hand in hand. So you don't ever really know that you're saved until you're really sanctified enough. So it's kind of a progressive thing that goes hand in hand all the way through. For modern evangelicalism, not only do we have this battle for holiness, but battle for living out the Christian life like Rosita is doing. How do we not only be pious, holy before God, but transform our culture? And that's the movement that we're a part of as an evangelical community. I need to be holy, but I also need to help my neighbor to be holy. I need to love him and share with him and take care of him. I need to struggle with him. I need to share the burdens of life. And that's the experience of Christ. So um, the problem, though, is that we have Laodicea in many situations, in many of our own lives. We say, I'm holy enough. I mean, I've really worked a lot. I'm, I'm good. I do this. I don't hurt my neighbor. I'm, I, I work hard every week. I have my money. I give some money to people. But in, in reality, Jesus looks and says, you say, I'm rich and I abound. I have all that I need. I have a big church. I do good things. But he says, look, you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And you need to come to me and you need to have really cleanse, a real cleansing And so that's our challenge. When the word of God is written on our heart as Christians, and you see sometimes, I don't feel as holy as I ought to be. Don't grieve. (laughs) Grieve that you're not as holy. (laughs) But at the same time, thank God. God's spirit is grappling with my spirit. And God is leading me to turn away from sin. And he's leading me into obedience. So God, of all the things that we describe God, how would you describe God? I think God is love, God is just, God is, God is good, God is eternal. You know, God is holy. The most common or the most frequently used descriptor of God is not his love or his justice or his goodness or his eternality. It's his holiness. He's separate from sin. Holy, holy. It's the only thing that God is said to be holy, 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 totally separate from sin. And so when you come to Christ, you too are to be holy. Christ is making you holy. Let's look at the next slide. Pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is a quote either from David Wells or Mark Knoll. If any of you great students can find this quote, I'd really like it. I I lost it a few years ago. (laughs) I'll pay you something if you find the quote. It's it's a wonderful quote, but I lost the book I got it from. The belief that faith alone saves and sanctifies, this is the Reformation statement, has been carried to the erroneous conclusion that a superficial intellectual consent to propositional truth requires no effort, no hardship, no discomfort, and ultimately 
no holiness on the part of the individual. What a scathing criticism of Christianity today. We say this, but we're not having holiness. It requires, this is a super, this is an erroneous conclusion that a superficial intellectual consent to propositional truth, that's not true faith, he's saying. That kind of stuff requires no effort, no hardship, no discomfort, and ultimately no holiness on the part of the individual. We've got to get back to true reformation faith is what he's saying. It's the next slide. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. You know, that's the last statement or that's the concluding statement in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about the, uh, uh, the two men who built their, built their houses on different foundations, one on a, a house on stone and one a house on sand. And the house on the sand crashed and the house on the stone or the rock stood firm. And he says, so what's your foundation? foundation is obedience he says the one who hears and does what i teach is the one who builds his house on the rock what's the rock sometimes we talk about christ as the rock but in this story the rock is obedience the rock is obedience he who hears these things and does them he's the one who who does who who, uh, who has eternal life he'll enter the kingdom of heaven And this is the will of him who sent me. When you talk about the will, it's it's very clear. This is faith. This is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes on him may have eternal life. So we're not talking about just external works. We're talking about faith, but a faith that's obedient, an obedient faith. What's the next one? Through him we've received... um, This is the, the book of Romans... Through him, we've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. If you look at the book of Romans, you see faith everywhere. At the beginning, 1-5, at 16-26, it's a book about faith. And yet, in the very middle of the book, in Romans 6, here's what we have. And let me just read this one to you. You can read it, and I'll read it. What then? Um, Is that the same verse we have? Yeah, what then? What then? Shall we sin because we're not under uh, the law but under grace? Certainly not. Don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Now remember, this is all about faith. God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You believed the gospel. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to uncleanness and of of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Isn't that amazing? Holiness, obedience, faith. And then he concludes, this is that text you all know, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So is he talking about justification by works here? No, he's talking about justification by by faith. But it's a faith, it's an obedient faith. So in the example of Jesus, how does that happen? Though he was a son, yet he, he learned obedience. 
in the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who believe. No, no, to all who obey him. So you obey him in faith. You obey him in, in obedience. This is bouncing all over. <laughs> and finally, um, when we come to God, when we come in faith, when we come in humility, in obedience, our lives are transformed. We begin to hear the voice of God. We don't hear perfectly, but we hear in a new level. And the challenge, I think, for us in Christmas, Christmas faith is just this. What is God calling you to do? You know, all of us are called to holiness, and we're called to holiness in a different way. We're called to obey God, but you obey what God has spoken to your heart. God has something for you to do this season. He has something for you to do as you leave this auditorium. He has an obedience of faith for you. And one of the real challenges to holiness is that you obey the voice of God. You hear it, especially through the Scriptures. You should saturate yourself with the Scripture. But you hear it, too, as God speaks to your heart. And in Christmas time, what's that really all about? You have this young girl, Mary, and she hears the voice of God and says, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. And what does she say? Well, be it to me as you've spoken. She is willing. She's obedient. That takes a tremendous amount of faith. I mean, you're going to get pregnant. You have no husband. How can this be? I don't have a husband. What's this going to look like? And so the angel goes to Joseph and says, oh, Mary is pregnant. That girl you were thinking about marrying, but don't fear to marry her. Oh, what? What do you mean? <laughs> don't fear to marry her. Because this is from the Holy Spirit. And, and so he does it. You've got wise men miles, miles away. And they're supposed to go and follow the star and take some gold and, and gifts of frankincense to the Messiah. And you've got shepherds who have this wonderful vision of God. And they say, what should we do? Well, let's go to Bethlehem and see this great thing that God has made known to us. I don't know how God's going to speak to you. But what I know is that God wants to show himself strong in you and make you a holy vessel for his use. It's incumbent upon you that you hear and that you obey and that you do it in the spirit of God, in the power that God's given. You do it by faith. And this is eternal life, that you may know him, the only true God. And you know him by faith and by obedience. May God bless you this Christmas. May you pursue holiness.